Jonathan Edwards was greatly helped by, as a young Christian by reading the Song of Solomon. I hope you've experienced something of what he experienced as we've made our way through this brief poem. I want to share with you what he said meant so much to him about the Song of Solomon as a young Christian. He writes, For about, From about that time I began to have a new kind of apprehension and ideas of Christ and the work of redemption and the glorious way of salvation by him. There was an inward sweet sense of these things at times that came into my heart, and my soul was led away in pleasant views and contemplations of them. And my mind was greatly engaged to spend my time in reading and meditating on Christ, on the beauty and excellency of his person, and the lovely way of salvation by free grace in him. I found no books so delightful to me as those that treated these subjects. Those words in Song of Solomon 2.1 used to be abundant with me. I am the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valleys. The words seemed to me sweetly to represent the loveliness and beauty of Jesus Christ. The whole book of Canticles, a Latin phrase for Song of Solomon, used to be pleasant to me, and I used to be much in reading it about that time and found from time to time an inward sweetness that would carry me away in my contemplations. Well, my prayer for us as we've made our way through this is that we'll know something of that, something of an inner sweetness that God's love would be shed abroad afresh in our hearts by the Holy Spirit as we consider these things. You know, honeymoons are wonderful times of excitement, fun, happiness, joy, and love, unless you went on my honeymoon. Now, my wife is wonderful, and our honeymoon was in many ways very wonderful, but my sin also brought a good deal of desire to redo the honeymoon. For instance, pro tip husbands, don't go in, young people learn this, don't go into your, don't go into your, um, to your honeymoon expecting to watch Karate Kid parts one, two, and three, and expect your wife while we're in Reno, Nevada, Lake Tahoe area to be excited about that. Also, if you lose at Monopoly, don't get mad about it. Those sorts of things soured our honeymoon a little bit. And it wasn't her fault. It was all my fault. So, Lord willing, next year when we celebrate our 20th, we get a good redo. And we'll look forward to hopefully not fighting about Monopoly. And I don't think we'll be watching The Karate Kid. But it's true that when we get married, like we saw last week in the Song of Solomon... There's this joy and exuberance that often accompanies it, and there's this basking in the glory of the wedding. And we think this was the way it's always going to be. And sometimes we get it on the end of the honeymoon, and sometimes we get it on the beginning of the honeymoon, that that ain't the real world. And that the real world has demands and responsibilities, and long after the glow of the honeymoon has faded and flickered, we can begin to settle into the normal that becomes a lackluster routine. And we see disappointment beginning to set in and expectations starting to get unmet and questions that begin to haunt us like, is this what we signed up for? Uh, is this what I'm going to have to endure for the rest of my life? Did, did we, did I make a mistake? And so they lived happily ever after is not how the Song of Solomon ends. It's the typical fairy tale ending, but it's not, unfortunately, the way things really are. Fairy tales don't end 
all the time, happily ever after. If fairy tale endings were true, Prince Charming would eventually discover that Snow White herself could be grumpy, sleepy, and dopey. And the beautiful Belle would discover eventually that the beast that became a man would at times turn back into a beast. And that they, would have, they should have invested some serious time in premarital counseling because those anger management issues ain't just going to go away on their own, as we saw in the beast's character. They might show up well after the wedding as well. And if you're searching for a sinless spouse, you're destined to be like Cinderella's prince, roaming vainly through the streets, knowing that the only foot that will fit that glass slipper is Jesus. So there's no perfect people to marry, and we know this because we are one of them. And we are married, if we are married, to one of them. And this is what this morning's portion of the Song of Solomon is all about. It's the glorious intimacy that the lovers entered that becomes threatened for a time before finally being restored after a lengthy search. Now that the couple has been married, a dream of sorts is narrated in Song of Solomon chapter 5, verses 2 through 6, verse 3, in which the woman loses her husband again, but eventually finds him. And it's similar to what we saw in chapter 3 with the night search that happened. But unlike that earlier passage, the married couple is now living in the same house together. And this section ends with the man returning back to the woman. So in between these two events, though, there's a series of disruptions and arguments and misunderstandings and failed connections between the husband and his wife that threaten to destroy their new marital bond. The honesty of the Bible really is so refreshing, isn't it? We're all going to experience times of difficulty in marriage involving two sinful human beings trying to figure out how to get along is at least a class B miracle. And the good news is that we can learn this, and it's a, this passage shows us the way. So we're going to consider the sanctifying conflict that occurs between the husband and the wife and what we see both in their marital relationship and what that reflects to us about our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to see the beginning of the conflict, first of all. Then we're going to see the sorrow in the conflict. And finally, the response to the conflict. Beginning of the conflict, sorrow in the conflict, and response to the conflict. First of all, we come to the beginning of the conflict in chapter 5, verses 2 through 6. Let's read together chapter 5, verse 2. I slept, the bride says, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved, is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. So the presentation of the bride is kind of half asleep with him being wet points to this being a late inconvenient hour. He's arrived home late perhaps. It's probably near or even after midnight. It's obviously been raining. No doubt he'd had a long, hard day, and his day had run into night, and he desires intimacy with his new wife. But the time is not ideal for her. She explains why in verse 3. I'd put off my garment. How could I put it on? I had bathed my feet. How could I soil them? So it appears that they have scheduled a time of intimacy together. 
She'd washed her body. She'd slipped something on. She'd waited for him to get home. She possibly waited for hours, we're not told. And finally, it appears she kind of gives up, blows out the candles, seals the bottle of myrrh, locks the doors, takes off some garments, and begins to go to sleep. But he doesn't know the plans have changed. He's ready to go. He gets home, and he finds a locked door, figuratively and literally. He desires intimacy, but she is not interested. And married people recognize the familiarity of this scene. He's wet. It's late. That's no worry to the man. She's already bathed and in bed. That's a concern for the woman. The king and his bride are in completely different states of mind, and they clearly desire completely different things at this moment. The situation isn't new. It's at least 3,000 years old. So if you've ever seen it in your marriage, welcome to the Song of Solomon. Doug O'Donnell describes how the conversation might have played out. In a half-asleep daze, she hears all this mumbling mush through the keyhole, and she yells, What? It's late! Too late! Why didn't you call? Call, he says, because phones haven't been invented yet. That's why I didn't call. I don't care that they haven't been invented. You should have called. What? I'm not getting up to let you in. Good night. Look at verse 4. My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. Now it appears the king doesn't argue. He doesn't plead. He doesn't sulk. But he does eventually walk away after his desires are rebuffed. However, once he goes from knocking and words of affection to touching the latch on the door, his actions seem to bring a change of heart in her. Look at verse 5. I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands drip with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. So she jumps out of bed, apparently not taking time to clothe herself, and hurries to the door, now ready for a time of lovemaking and intimacy. But when the bride opens the door, he's gone. Look at verse 6. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. How did all this occur? I mean, it seemed to happen so fast. They went from a time of love and consciousness to having a misunderstanding and mis-expectations. And was it not happening in some sense because both of them were being selfish? He's selfish because he's come home too late and he doesn't think that should affect happy time. She's selfish too. He's being inconsiderate. She's being inconsiderate. He's tired. She's tired. She's ready to go to sleep. He's ready to not go to sleep just yet. Phil Riken says, The lover's quarrel can help us see the patterns of selfishness that shape most of our own conflicts. When I get angry, it's often because I had an expectation that someone else failed to meet or maybe that life itself has failed to meet. In order to deal with my anger, it helps me to examine my expectations to see what they were and to ask whether they were directed to the glory of God or not. It will also help me to consider what expectations other people had because that will probably help me be more sympathetic to their point of view and it might help us figure out together how to make things right. 
Unless we examine our expectations in the clear light of God's word, we will keep having the same arguments over and over again, and our relationships might not make it. End quote. I think that's a good perspective for us to have. So many conflicts, not just in marriage, but in human relationships in general, are owing to expectations that one or more parties does not share. The earlier those expectations can get surfaced and discussed, the less likelihood there will be conflict. But where, there's those, where those expectations are assumed, conflict can often result. And it's important to get real, isn't it, about the realities of marriage that are presented here in this portion of the song? We say, I do, in an undone world. And unmet expectations will lead to expected undoing of a marriage if we don't catch little foxes like this one that would spoil the vineyard. Sister wives, your husband is not God. Don't expect him to be. Brother husbands, your wife is not God. Don't expect her to be. Marriage was designed by God to root the selfishness out of both of you. And the more that you're on that plan your marriage will thrive and survive. And the more you war against that plan of God rooting the selfishness out of both of you, one or more of you as a spouse will be affected. So are you you down for this, married brothers and sisters? Are you down for a lifetime of joyful self-denial and flesh crucifixion? Because that's what it will take. That's what we sign up for when we say, I do. That's why we have to pledge vows like, until death do us part because there will be times where we'll want to kill one another. And there will be times where the sorrows and the joys of life will push us away rather than push us toward. Don't say I do if later you say I won't. We say I do, so we'll never have to say I won't. Difficulties are part of the deal, and they will stretch but never break the bond, and through grace and forgiveness they can actually strengthen it. Now in that moment, this bride had a decision to make, didn't she? While she was lying in that bed. And the husband had a decision to make. One option for the bride would have been just to slam the door, lock the latch, forget him! He can sleep outside for all I care. If he comes crawling back to me, maybe I'll let him in, but otherwise I'm so done with this relationship. He could have said, Fine, if you're going to be that way, don't expect me back for a week. And then stormed off. We don't see either of those reactions, do we? We see the man walking away, and we're not told that he's in self-pity here. Perhaps he just is respecting her. And he's communicating to her his love for her and his willingness to give of himself to care for her. And she's communicating her desire to care for him. So they're both responding to this conflict in the right way by showing each other love. So that's the beginning of the conflict, but it's created a temporary rupture in the relationship. And now we're going to come to the second point, the sorrow in the conflict that resulted. And this is largely from the bride's point of view in verses 7 through 16. It's always easier to just walk away, right? When we have a conflict, just walk away. Wait for the other person to make the first move. Expect an apology before giving one. But her response is to go on the offense. She searches everywhere, calling out for her husband. 
but without any answer. Look at verse 7. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. They beat me. They bruised me. They took my veil, those watchmen of the walls. Wait, what? Things all of a sudden turn very nightmarish. This, is, this, this passage is paralleling what we saw in chapter 3, right? When the, when the woman went out searching for her then fiancé, where he might be and fearing that she might lose him forever, what happens? Well, she searches and she searches and she searches and she searches, but nothing like this happened. In fact, the people help her find, find him. But here, they respond by beating her and bruising her, taking her veil. What's going on here? Well, like I said, I think this is a dream sequence, okay? So we're not to take this literally. In fact, I, in verse 2, she says, I slept, but my heart was awake. So there was a kind of consciousness going on, a thoughts of these things, but I mean, she's not literally going out into the streets and getting beat up by guys. But the point is, is that she stopped, she struck, she stripped. And does this treatment by the watchman reflect something of the inner turmoil that she's experiencing? Her guilt, her sense of failure at the slowness to respond to her husband? So I don't think interpretive certainty can be achieved here, but I see the blows here being symbolic of the repentance that's being given to her by God that will lead to restoration and reconciliation later on. It's a sense in which she's describing how she feels. She's be, she feels beaten up. She feels bruised. She feels like all things are going bad. In another book of wisdom, the book of Job, we find words that closely parallel the words of these verse, which, verses which lead me to this interpretation. Job 23, 8-10, we read, If I go east... He is not there, talking about God. And if I go west, I cannot perceive him, Job says. When he is at work to the north, I cannot see him. When he turns south, I cannot find him. Sounds like what the woman is saying here in Song of Solomon. Yet, he knows the way I have taken. When he has tested me, I will emerge as gold. So why can't he seem to find the Lord here? It's because the Lord is disciplining him. All right? The Lord is disciplining him, and I believe that's, in a sense, what this woman is receiving here. Just as Moses and Solomon envisioned Israel coming under the discipline of the Lord for rejecting him, so the bride is being disciplined here for her rejection of the king. Now, there are other texts where watchmen are used by the Lord to proclaim judgment against his people. I'll give you one, Ezekiel 3.17. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. So the role of the watchman was to be a, a voice of judgment on behalf of the Lord. And just as the watchman helped the bride to find the king in chapter 3, so now the prophets like Moses, who mediated Israel's relationship with the Lord, like the watchman visited justice on the bride for refusing the king here, the prophets announcing judgment on Israel for rejecting the Lord. So I think there's a little bit of that going on. So perhaps these watchmen then are serving as sources of God's chastisement and discipline to get this couple back on the right track. They are God's refining messengers to point the way back home. 
Think of Asaph in Psalm 73, who envied the wicked before coming to worship and understanding that we can have a good life in sin now and a bad life in hell later, and it completely changed his perspective. Or consider Nathan, who came to David with a parable regarding his adultery with Bathsheba and murder of her husband Uriah, only to have this lead to the conviction of his sin and his repentance writing of Psalm 51. So in our sin, God is committed to discipline us because he's treating us as his children, as Hebrews 10 reminds us, 10, 11, and 12. And this discipline is appearing to work in this particular case. The bride has stopped thinking about herself and she starts thinking about him. She gets out of the bed in the middle of the night to search the streets in great danger at risk to her reputation because of him. And she endures great beating because because of her search for him. She is no longer the focus. He's the focus. We are in a completely different place than we were at the beginning. This sorrow that she's experiencing is leading to repentance. The man offended and sought to reconcile, and now the woman is offended and seeking to reconcile. Say, where did the man seek to reconcile? Well, in chapter, in verse 4, he puts his hand on the latch. He's not going away. He's reminding her that he's still there. And so... In verses 6 and 7, she's doing the same. She's searching for him, seeking to tell him that she is not going away. Now, the full fruit of this reconciliation with Solomon is beautifully detailed in the verses we're going to see in just a moment. But we get the seed in verse 8. Look at verse 8. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem. Notice she changes the way she describes things here. It used to be don't arise or awaken love until it so desires. Well, now it's awakened. It's alive. It's there. So what does she say now? She pleads with these women to help her find her husband. If you find my beloved, tell him I am sick with love. She wants the women to find him and tell him that she's sick with love over him. That his absence is making her nauseous. That him not being there is breaking her heart. The bride is challenged in verse 9 by the daughters of Jerusalem. She's been challenging the daughters of Jerusalem. Now it's their turn. They're going to challenge her and push back on her and remind her of the perspective she needs to have. Look at verse 9. What is your beloved more than another beloved? O most beautiful among women. What is your beloved more than another beloved that you thus adjure us? Now, what are they doing here? They're saying you're lovesick over this guy, right? Tell me why. Tell me why. Tell us why. Twice they ask, what's it makes him better than another? Why don't you go somewhere else? What makes him? Now, are they telling him? Are they telling her, go commit adultery? Quit wasting your time on this guy. Some ungodly women will tell women that. But not this one, not these women. They're, they're calling her mind away from the source of the conflict to the beauty of the person. They're, they're, she's calling, they're calling her away from thinking about the way she's been offended to the, to the person that she married. They're, 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 she's calling her attention away from all the discord and trouble that she was experiencing to this person. I think that's very wise because so often conflict festers and grows when you start focusing on the problem and not the person, right? 
when you start focusing on the problem, this person is a problem, rather than considering the problem in light of the person. This bride welcomes the challenge that she hears. She admires her husband and she showers him with a catalog of praises beginning in verse 10. She's shifting her focus away from the problem to the beauty of the person. Notice verse 10. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. She's going to now do for him what he did for her in chapter 4. Begin to distinguish his distinguishing features and character. Verse 11, his head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. So again, she's working her way down, head, eyes, cheeks. Verse 13, his cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. Now down to the arms. Verse 14, his arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet and is altogether desirable. This is my beloved. This is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. What does this exercise do? It leads the bride to recognize the wonderful attributes of the man she's married. Instead of focusing on the ways he disappointed her, she fixes her mind on the true and wonderful things about him. And just as God's discipline of Israel was designed to make Israel realize how good the Lord is, to make them jealous for his love, this is what happens to this bride. Let me make two applications here. First of all, to marriage, and second of all, to the Christian life in general. Married brothers and sisters, please don't ever lose sight of how special your spouse is. Open your eyes to those things and verbalize them to others and to the spouse themselves. This will be a great antidote to conflict in your marriage, as both the husband and the wife do here in chapters 4 and 5. Do you ever open your mouth? Yes, you do, of course. The greater question is what comes out? Anything nice? you ever sound like they sound? Do you have pet names for each other? Honey, sugar, sweetie, babe, love, bride? If you aren't, if you don't have any of those, maybe that feels weird or strange. Maybe you start with Bob Dylan, covenant woman. She, your covenant woman, got a contract with the Lord. Start with covenant woman. Then maybe we move on from there to as one husband called his wife, his rib. But there's a kindness here that drips from her tongue toward him just as there was a kindness that dripped off his tongue for her. But secondly, there's an application here about the Christian life, isn't there? When we go through sorrow as a result of our sin, when we come under the discipline of the Lord as a result of our sin, what is the Lord doing? He's trying to get your eyes on him. And what is the best thing you can do for your soul when you're going through times of sorrow and trouble? Whether they be in human relationships or work or just whatever's going on physically challenging in your life or emotionally or relationally or spiritually. Meditate on the goodness and love and grace of God. It's the very best thing you can do for your soul is think long and hard about your beautiful bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and do all you can to get your eyes and your mind off your circumstances and onto him. Think about him, pray to him, speak to him, reflect on him, meditate on him. All the things you don't normally, that I don't normally reflexively do when things are going hard or bad. This is why it requires a bit of discipline and effort, doesn't it? I think it required a little bit of discipline and effort for this woman to get out after her husband too. It wasn't going to come easy. It requires denial of yourself and crucifixion of the flesh and striving after holiness. But it's richly rewarded when the Lord gives you a sight of his love and sheds it abroad in your heart. And he will do just that. He doesn't play hard to get, but he wants to know if you really want him. And when you do, he rushes in and meets you to fellowship again. So that's the sorrow. That's the sorrow in the conflict. Thirdly and finally, we come to the response to the conflict at the beginning of chapter 6. The response to the conflict. So the happy couple hits a bump in the road. There was some bad timing, hurt feelings, unhappy night in the bedroom. However, this couple loves each other, and they will not allow their relationship to be sidetracked. They're going to put in the hard work. They're going to put in the necessary work to work through their problems. The honeymoon may be over. The marriage is just beginning, and the marriage is not going to be over. They're in it for the long haul, and they're going to work to make it work. And so now that her friends have heard her say these things about her husband, notice they are prepared now to do what? Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Help find him. Where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? See, they've been drawn in to this pursuit as well. As, they, as she has reminded them of how beautiful her husband is, they have been caught up in his beauty as well. She has evangelized them. And she evangelized them with the beauty of the husband. I encourage you to do that in your evangelism as well. When you speak to other people, what's so great about Jesus when they ask you, or why are you a Christian, or why do you do that? Tell them something about his loveliness. Tell them something about his beauty. Tell them something that he's fair. You don't have to say it this way. They'll look at you weird, but you say, I found him whom my soul loves, and I'm not going anywhere. And if I ever find somebody else who loves me better than Christ, I'll happily desert Christ. But to this day, I've never found it, and I don't think I will. And even as they begin to search, notice what happens in verse 2. He's already there. He's already there. The Lord said, I will be found by those who seek me. You will, see, you will search me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. And you don't have to search long. He's right there. Maybe some of you here this morning, not, not close to the Lord, not walking with the Lord, say, ah, I've gone so far, it's going to take a really long time to get back to him. I've got to work my way back. I've got to come to at least 700 church services to purge any of this sin out of my life. I've got good news for you. If you will turn back to him, you will find him right there. He can get closer to you in a second than you can get further away from him in 10,000 years. And if you will turn back to him, he will meet you right there, right now, right here, right now in your distress. And notice the husband is right there. So what does he say to her? He said, my beloved is gone. She says in verse two, down to his garden to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather the lilies. I am my beloved's, my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. She's saying, 
He's right here with me. He's come back to his garden. Well, how do we know they're back together? Because verse 4 says so. He starts talking again. So it's not saying the husband has this you know, hobby he likes to do. He's a, he likes to garden, and he's off at his garden. Now she was told, oh, he's at his garden. You can go find him in his garden. No, she's his garden. That's clear throughout the song. She is his garden, and he has come back to his garden, to his wife, to his bride. And what does he say to her when, she, when he sees her? About time. Did he say that? About time you got here. Don't you know I'm ruddy and handsome? No, he doesn't say any of that, does he? He says, you are beautiful. No offense. No purgatory. No punishment in the marriage. Do you do that in your marriage? Kind of punish each other a little bit if you have a rift? None of that in Christian marriages should ever exist. How would you like the Lord to relate to you like that? You come back to him after sinning. Wait a little second. You're going to have to sit and stew in that a little while. Now, there is discipline, of course, but the Lord's always wise as a father in the way he does that. But this couple just loves. So what is it that ultimately sustains their love for one another? What is it that enables them ultimately to respond this way? Well, if you put the question to many men and women in our culture who are in a relationship, If you ask them the question, where has your lover gone? In our culture, they'd say, I don't know. Out. With the rise of cohabitation and no-fault divorce and even the watered-down and redefined nature of covenant marriage today, we really don't know what it means to be bound to anything. If you want to walk out, walk out. But covenant marriage, as God has designed, it's entirely different. You don't walk out because of conflict. You promise for better, for worse, richer, for poorer, sorrow, or happiness, sickness, and in health. Now, this is not said to shame anyone who have broken or whose spouse have broken those vows. I'm just reminding us of God's design in the covenant. The covenant is intended to sustain the love, not love sustain the covenant. Where you have covenantal marriage, you have security because you know where the person is. They might get upset, they might get angry, but you know where they are, and they'll always come back to the garden. In chapter 6, verse 3, she gives the reason why she is confident. I am my beloved's, my beloved's is mine. We are in covenant marriage with each other. It's because they are married, no ifs, ands, or buts, that they will reunite in spite of trials and problems. Now, let me conclude by reminding us of how what this entire passage, I hope, teaches us about the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, this passage, perhaps more than any other in the entire Song of Solomon, tells the story of Israel's dealings with the Lord. The whole section is a summary of Israel's relationship with God. Remember, the Lord, Yahweh, married Israel at Mount Sinai, but the people committed adultery with the golden calf on the honeymoon in Exodus 32, before they ever even left the mountain. And just as Israel entered the covenant and immediately turned away from the Lord, in this passage we see that immediately following the consummation of this marriage, the bride rejects the king who will withdraw, and then the bride will be disciplined, after which she seeks the king again. I think that's the story of the Old Testament. 
don't you? And again, here, we have a model of Christ in the church. In spite of all our failures, imperfections, and sins, He will not break covenant with us. Know this, dear ones, you have a Savior who will never leave you and never forsake you because He's married to you. Though we have offended Him in our sin and He would have every right to walk away from us, touch the latch, and never come back again, He doesn't. He pursues us. Every time we turn our back on Him, He comes looking for us. We think we're looking for Him. He's already spotted us. He's in our sights. We're in His sights and He's coming after us. Heedless of all danger in his search for us, he took the position the bride took here. He went out and got bruised and beaten out of love for us. He submitted himself to the watchman of God's judgment and endured everything for our sake that we might come back into his embrace. He endured every kind of abuse imaginable at the hands of wicked men, culminating in the physical torture of the cross and the spiritual abandonment of his father. He was willing to fight for our love all the way to the cross, into the empty tomb, and back out on the other side. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for, his, for her life he died. Jesus Christ came down to this earth to save his bride, save his church. And on the night in which he was betrayed, he gathered with his disciples for one last supper. And while they're arguing and bickering and fighting about who was going to be the top dog in the kingdom, he was loving his own who were in the world, loving them until the end, washing their feet with a towel and with a basin. Ian Duguid says, you cannot simply enter a relationship with Christ by praying a prayer or throwing a stick into the fire, getting baptized and checking that off your to-do list. You're called to a lifelong pursuit of Christ. As you continually sin against Him and then reach out afresh in repentance, pressing onward toward, to, to this, in the search of true intimacy with God, yet you should also be encouraged in your pursuit by God's prior and unfailing commitment in Christ to pursue you, even when you're running as fast as you can in the opposite direction. See, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, we see the King of Kings standing at a different door and knocking asking his church to gently open to him again so that he can come in and be intimate with them. What are the tender and pleading words that flow from his mouth? Listen, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hear my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and have dinner with him and he with me. That precious invitation from the great king is for you and for me this morning. It's an invitation to continually welcome Christ in, to be restored and continually restored to right relationship with him as our creator. It's an invitation to be reconciled with our shepherd because he has redeemed us by his blood. One greater than Solomon desires to enter into sweet spiritual intimacy with you as one of his children. And he stands at the door gently knocking. And when you do let him in and we again experience his loving friendship, we are changed and become free to be the kind of people who aren't preoccupied with how others have offended us or hurt us, but who are freed from selfishness to love. See, we don't run away from conflict, but instead do everything we can to make things right with those we love, no matter what it personally costs us. And that's exactly the kind of love that this bride and this husband has experienced. Remember that these words of Jesus knocking on the door of the church came not to a church that had it all together, but to a broken and sinful church, a lukewarm church at Laodicea that didn't need anything from Jesus. They were comfortable, they were self-sufficient, 
And brothers and sisters, in case you don't know this, we are all born Laodiceans by nature. Cold toward God, indifferent toward His ways, and all about ourselves. But God gently begins to break in, opening our blind eyes, softening our hard hearts, wearing us down with His grace, and He gives us the desire and the ability to open the door of our hearts, and then He calls on us to open to Him. I know that Revelation 3.20 is mainly an exhortation to the church to open to Christ afresh, but it is legitimately applied to those who have never opened to Christ to begin with. Christ stands at every heart's door this morning, brothers and sisters, everyone in here. And are you listening to his call? Don't put it off. Arise from your bed, run to the door, lest you wait too long and not find the lover of your soul there. He will come in if you open yourself to him, no matter how dirty or messy you are. Repent of your self-centeredness and self-worship and receive the truest love you will ever find in the entire universe. And don't delay because today is the day of salvation. And Christian, as you search your heart, what do you find toward Christ? If you're like me, you often find coldness and indifference and residual Laodiceanism that dies a hard death. But he has inscribed burning words of his love for us in the Bible And we can't be bothered to read it because social media beckons. He invites us to meet with him for fellowship in the church, in a prayer meeting, at the Lord's Supper. But we got stuff to do. We got, he's inviting us through songs and preaching. And our minds are wondering on what's for lunch and what the person in the next row thinks about us. Do you not deserve to be spat out of Christ's mouth like me? Should we not be issued a certificate of divorce by our faithful husband for our ongoing and unrepentant spiritual adultery? And in the face of all this, as our sins press against us, I encourage you to pay a visit to the daughters of Jerusalem. Let their counsel and questions affect you. How have you been loved by Jesus, dear soul? Tell me, what is your husband more than others? And when you do, you will say with the psalmist, come you who fear God, I will tell you what he has done for my soul. And that, dear ones, is how we make progress in the Christian life. By realizing how much he loves us in spite of our sin against him. He will never spit us out of his mouth. Just like how this husband responded to his bride, so Christ does with us. When we stew in our sin, but we finally get out of bed and walk across the floor and open the door, he will always be there. He will always be there. His covenant love for us conquers our hearts. It isn't His authority, His wrath, His power alone that subdues us. It's His self-sacrificial, forgiving love. And while there's no such thing in this world as a perfect marriage, apart from the, the, the one that will happen one day uh, at the, between Christ and the church, the church of Christ ought to be full of beautiful marriages as husbands and wives begin to relate to each other the way Christ relates to us. It is possible today. The more we understand and apprehend who Christ is to the church and what the church is to Christ, receiving and resting in His grace to begin to manifest that in the way we treat each other, in the way the, we, the, way the church treats each other, by overlooking offenses because we know that the Lord has overlooked so many of ours, by focusing on the beauty of Christ rather than, than the defilement of our brothers and sisters. See, if we're only focused horizontally, 
we will never get vertical. But if we start vertical every day and remind ourselves of who Christ is and how he treats us and how we are loved by him, we can pour that out horizontally. But if we start horizontally, we'll always go wrong and we'll always come up empty. Because what a wonderful witness it is. The only one that Jesus said would compel the world to view us as his disciples. When Christ's love for the church shapes the church's love for Christ. And the wonderful thing is, is by grace, we can be that kind of witness. We can be that kind of witness together as a body of Christ in our homes and in our relationship with the Lord himself. May God grant it for Christ's sake, for his glory, for our good. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful this morning to have seen your heart again for us as your people in the Song of Solomon. Thank you for the way this husband loved this wife and for the way the wife responded to this husband in love. Thank you that when there is rupture and conflict and challenge, that the love of Christ can cover, that the love of Christ can make amends, both in our own lives and in our relationship with you, that we are, that we are never without what we need to love well. Because when you love us, we love. So Lord, enable us to be receivers of your love. Help us to be to know what it means to be um, not those who shut you out, keep the door closed, don't let you into our inner worlds to reshape and refashion us in your image. But Lord, grant that we would be hearts wide open to your love for us so that we could be changed by that and to those who love you and love each other better. We pray all this in the glorious name of our risen King, the one greater than Solomon the Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.